The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eaten in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, I don't know about you, but when I am working on a task, let's say it's a big project and there's little chunks of of the big project. I get, I get really focused on what's in front of me. I get really sucked in. The details become super, super important. But then as you zoom out, you realize that those details aren't quite as important as what you once thought. Anybody else kind of like that? You just kind of get suckered into right, what's right in front of you? Well, I think that um, as we make our way through 1 Corinthians, that we might easily make that mistake. I'm not saying that we are, but it's just kind of, we might get too suckered in on, on this one thing. So I kind of want to provide us an opportunity to, to step back and see what's Paul trying to accomplish by writing to the Corinthians? What's, what's Paul doing here? And what he's doing is he's writing a letter to the Corinthians, a church that was planted recently, so that they may be an established, healthy church a church that loves Jesus, a church that does a good job of of walking in faith and walking in obedience. Uh, He wants to see them love each other well, a church that is healthy, and it's uh, members of the church are loving each other well in a way that's radical. He wants to make sure the church is uh, loving their city well, loving their neighbors well. He's doing this so that the church will be a healthy church, a church that can reproduce because healthy things reproduce. He wants to see this Corinthian church get established so that they can establish other healthy churches. Paul wants to build a church that can weather the storm, a church that is built on solid ground, a church that will be faithful into the next century and hundreds of centuries beyond. That is what Paul is after as he's writing to the Corinthians. And so as he's writing to the Corinthians, he's answering a few questions. We've seen, we've seen him a, a address a few issues. There's some division in the church. Um, there's some affairs going on. We've seen uh, 
marriage issues. They've got questions about marriage. And today we're in a passage where, where Paul's addressing an issue, uh, a question about food sacrifice to idols. And this, this sounds kind of crazy to us. We don't, I don't, I'm not sure if we really understand what sacrificing food to idols looks like, but it's a good reminder to us that the Bible was written for us, not to us. That Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, is not writing to Sacred City Church in Davenport, Iowa in 2014. But what Paul's writing to the Corinthian church is for our benefit. It's for our good. There's wisdom that we can take, that we can see, and we can, we can grow from it. And so as we look at this passage, I think it's important to remind, remind ourselves that, that this isn't written to us, but it's written for us. So there's a principle, there's a, uh, something in this passage that we can grow from, something that we can learn from. And what that, that thing, that, that, that principle, that issue that Paul's aiming at is, is larger than just food idols or food sacrifice to idols. What Paul is aiming at beneath everything, he's addressing an issue with love. The church isn't doing well at loving one another. The issue is that the Corinthian church is being driven by knowledge of God rather than a love for God and for one another. That's the issue. From this issue, from that central issue, that's where we have other issues. That's where people are having affairs. That's where people are causing divisions. That's why people are having issues with food sacrificed to idols. And this knowledge-driven approach to church is puffing up individuals. It's making the church very individualistic, and it's puffing them up rather than being a church that is unified and is built up. And so that's where we're headed this morning. That's where we're going to go. I want to explain the text. I want to pull some stuff out so you can see uh, that that this is the case, that this is what Paul is really saying here. And then I want to spend some time exploring what it looks like to apply this principle to our lives here in Davenport, Iowa. So I'm going to pray, and we'll jump right in. God, this is, a, this is a treat this morning to gather with with believers, to gather with our church family, and to lift you up. This is a treat to be under the, uh, the authority of your scripture, to be reminded of the gospel, to be reminded of our failures, but to know that we have a Savior who is so much bigger than our failures. I was blessed by the the lyrics, the the words of the songs, God, and just being reminded of your love for us, your love for the church. God, and you love the church, and you've given the church your word to, to hold on to, to, to study and to cherish and to treasure. And so I ask that you would give us a deeper understanding of your word today. I, would, I ask that you would give us a love for the word. I pray that you would give us a longing for the word, to know the mind of Christ, to know what God has for us in his great wisdom. And I pray that we would be impacted by the word that it wouldn't be something we hear and it falls on deaf ears and and we walk away like it's nothing, but we would be deeply affected and impacted by this word today. Lord God, in being impacted, I pray that you would help us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. So Lord, please be with me now as as I preach. Would you use me? I'm a weak man. I'm a foolish man. I I get it wrong often, but would you use me in a way that 
that your might is felt, in a way that your presence is known, in a way where your, your spirit is active and Jesus Christ is glorified. Give us ears to hear, O oh God. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this is what's going on in the passage. I, I wish I could take it chunk by chunk, but we'd be here for a few hours and nobody wants to, to be here for a few hours, especially if it's going to be nice. So I'll, I'll break it down for you. What's going on here in the Corinthian church, some Corinthian Christians are using their freedom in Christ to do some questionable things. And it's stirring up a lot of questions and it's causing a lot of issues especially issues for those who are weak, those who aren't mature in Christ. Specifically, what they're doing is they're going to places that sell food that has been sacrificed to idols. They're going to the temples. They're going to the marketplaces where they know food is sacrificed to idols. Now, this probably deserves some further explanation. What, what does it mean to sacrifice food to idols? What's an idol in the first place? Well, back then... Idols were everywhere, and sacrificing food to an idol was very, very common. Idols were pieces of stone or molded gold or silver or other valuable material, and actually it could be really any material. It doesn't need to be a valuable material, but anything that represented a sort of man-made deity, a man-made God, a man-made power that could be of service to someone. That's what an idol was. And the first thing that usually comes to our mind when we talk about idols is the golden calf that the Israelites made after uh, Moses led them out of, the, the, out of Egypt. And it's kind of that thing. It's, it's something that resembles something bigger than itself. And in Corinth, there was no shortage of these idols. If you needed an idol, if you needed a god for growing cabbage, there was a god for that. There was an app for that. If you needed a God who could make your kids more obedient, there was a God for that. If you needed a, a God who could make your husband's feet smell less, there was probably a God for that. Like there were gods for everything. And, um, and so scholars say that nearly every piece of food in the Corinthian marketplace was at one point sacrificed to a pagan God or an idol that almost every food, either in, in the growing of it, they would pray to a, the sun god that the sun wouldn't scorch their product. They would, they would pray that they could eat, they would sacrifice something to a, a pagan god so that they could eat the food without getting sick. They would do all kinds of things to sacrifice it, food to a fake god. And this idol worship sounds kind of strange to us, especially the whole sacrificing something to an idol. You know, like, when was the last time you went to Applebee's, the server comes up to you, can I get your drink? Yeah, I have this, this, this. Uh, could I interest you in our steak special tonight? It has recently been sacrificed to a moon god. Like, that, that doesn't really happen in our culture. We don't have that, that same sort of issue that the Corinthians had. But, however, idol worship, listen here, idol worship is still a huge part of our culture. Idol worship hasn't stopped. We have become more advanced in our idol worship. We've learned to disguise our idol worship. And so now rather than having an idol or a figurine or something to worship, our idols are usually in our hearts. They're unseen. They're things that we chase after that there's no physical thing to put our hands on. Tim Keller explains an idol like this. 
It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you only what God can give. That, that makes it possible to have a ton of different idols. And all these idols do is they offer false hope, they offer empty promises, and they leave us uh, in despair when they don't deliver on those promises. They, they ruin us. We've, we spend so much time chasing after them, and we get there, or we think we get there, and we've got nothing to show for it. And rather than, in our culture, rather than sacrificing food to idols, we sacrifice all kinds of other things to idols. We sacrifice our time. We sacrifice our money. We sacrifice our resources. We sacrifice our relationships. We sacrifice our energy, our creativity. The list goes on and on. There are tons and tons of things that we sacrifice to these idols. And, and there are a few prominent idols in our culture. And I, I want to take a moment to, to kind of explore those with you. Um, one really common idol is uh, the idol of beauty, idol of vanity. The way you look, your weight, your body shape, not just for ladies, but for men too. And the false hope and the empty promise is that you'll be something when you drop five pounds. You'll be someone special when you got that cover girl face. You'll be something when you get there, and there could be way off. And people chase after these idols. They chase after beauty. They sacrifice time. They spend hours and hours a week in the gym. They sacrifice money on cosmetics and $1,000 haircuts or whatever, like tons of money, relationships. Like, you could be hanging out with your friends, but instead you're spending three hours in front of the mirror getting ready. Like, you're sacrificing time, relationships there. And there's some icons that represent this sort of idolatry. For example, if you have an ungodly amount of selfies on Instagram, like, you probably have a little bit of idolatry going on there. Uh, if, if you are in the gym, like, and this is the only workout that you do, like, your biceps are probably an icon to that idolatry. Look, and, and I don't want you to be deceived. There are still temples for these, these idols. There's still temples. We just call them gyms and salons. There are still temples for these idols. Another idol could be money and power. And the false hope that money and power offer is that you'll be something special when you have more letters behind your name. You'll be more special when you reach the next pay grade. Then you'll be somebody. You'll be somebody when you have that corner office. And you get there, and you just realize there's the next level. You've got to take it to the next level. And so it just keeps going and going and going. And we sacrifice all kinds of things on the altar of money and power. We like most common, we sacrifice our family. You're sacrificing your family time to be in the office. You're sacrificing family vacations to be working, to do extra traveling so you can get that next big client. You sacrifice uh, relationships. You spend your time in the library at 10 o'clock, you know, I get it. There are some students who need to study late, but like when it's 10.30 on a Saturday night, like go home, like go hang out with friends, 
be a normal person. Like, and so the temples for this idolatry, for this idol, like I said, the workplace, the office becomes a temple where you sacrifice those things. The, the library becomes an idol place, a place where you sacrifice to this idol. And then another really common one that especially uh, really common for younger people is the idol of freedom. The, it's the false hope, the empty promise that you'll be happy, you'll be free when you can finally ignore any sort of authority, whether it's mom and dad or Uncle Sam. Like you just like, oh man, freedom, so good if I didn't have to listen to my boss. Like that's what it is. And as soon as you think you'll be happy as soon as someone's not imposing rules on you, but the reality is that there's always something that's going to be limiting you. It might not be a person, but, but try this. Try going to play basketball when you're 88 years old and you have a cane. Like, your body is telling you that you don't have the freedom to play basketball as an 88-year-old man anymore. Like, our bodies, if anything else, will limit us in our freedom. And so it's an empty promise. There's always something that's, that's over us, that's ruling us. Now, these are just a few examples, and, and they may not apply to you. Some of them might. But I have a theory. This is my theory. My theory is, if you are unsure of your idols, if you're unsure of what you worship, all you have to do is go to the backside of your car and look at your bumper. Your bumper sticker will indicate what you worship. Now, this is true for me. Uh, I have a UNI sticker on my car, not, because I'm, not just because I'm proud to be a Panther, but when I put it on my car, it meant something much more than you and I. I didn't get into you and I the first time I applied. Out of high school, uh, I kind of sloughed off my freshman and sophomore years in high school, so my GPA wasn't very stellar. So I went to apply to you and I, and I just missed the cutoff, and I was devastated. I got my rejection letter. I took that thing, and I pinned it up right above my bed. So every morning when I woke up, I'd look at the rejection letter, and I'd be reminded, you didn't make it. Every time I went to bed, you didn't make it. You got to work harder. You got to work harder. And so this produced, and it's probably even lasted long before this, but, but a performance idol. Like, I didn't make it, so I've got to work hard now. I've got to get, gain the accolades of my professors. I've got to get the right grades. I've got to earn this spot. And so when I finally, uh, when I finished my associate's degree, I applied to you and I again, thinking, well, if I don't get in, they burned me once. Who cares? But I got in. I got in. And so I took that, I took that sticker, and I slapped it on my car, and I was like, I made it. I'm smarter than you, I worked harder than you, and you and I is not even that, that great of a school as far as academically, but, but, but I was like, I did it! And this was, my, this was my icon, like, this was the icon to my performance idol. Like, I did it! And so, if, if you're unsure about your idol, go look, go look on your car after church. See what's on, what's on your bumper sticker. Or maybe you have too nice of a car to put a bumper sticker on it, and that's a whole other issue. <laughs> so, but let's get back to the Corinthians here. The, the Corinthians, they were, some of them were eating food, sacrificed to idols, and they were eating in idol temples. And they were using their knowledge to justify what they were doing. They were saying stuff like, an idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. In other words, they're saying, there's nothing behind these idols. These temples are just 
to made-up fairies. Like, there's nothing real about them, so why should I not go eat there? They got good food. But Paul hears their argument, and, and he partially agrees with them, as we'll see here in a little bit. He partially agrees with them, but he says, he makes a correction that, that an idol, he's like, an idol has no real existence, like, in, in one sense, yes, that's true, but in another, that's not true. Paul says in verse 5, Indeed, there are many lords, and there are many gods. He's saying there are a lot of things out there that are competing for God's place. that are competing to be God, capital G God. They're called your family, your work, your sports team, your nutrition, power, money. I mean, there are things that are out there that are real, that you're chasing after, that are competing for God's place. And behind those things, listen, this is going to sound weird, but behind all of those things, behind every idol, behind everything that your heart chases after more than it chases after God, there is something demonic about it. There's something purely evil about it. Because what it's doing is trying to push you away from God. It's trying to, to steal a place in your heart that only belongs to God. Paul, in verse 20 of chapter 10, says that a pagan sacrifice, idol worship, is offered to demons. When you're worshiping your money, your family, people's approval, power and influence, vanity, you are worshiping demons. Well, you might be saying, Sam, I, I love my family. Like, they're my number one. How is that demonic? Well, I'm telling you, anything, anything that you put as a number one priority over God, it's, it's gone from a good thing to a God thing. It's gone from a good thing to a bad thing. And it, it's not healthy. It's not good that God would be number two, that God would be number three, that God would be number four. God deserves that number one spot in your life. But of course, as we, as we love God, we're enabled to do things. We're enabled to love our family well. We're enabled to be good workers. We're enabled to, to uh, take care of our bodies. Like, there are still things in response to the gospel, in response to loving God that we do. But when those things elevate themselves to God's place, they become sinful, demonic. And so Paul's saying that there's a lot of idols out there. But let's read verse 6 together. He says, Yet for us, for the church, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are, who are all things and through whom we exist. He says, you're right. There is one God. There is truly only one God, the Father, from whom are all things. He created everything. From whom we exist. We exist for God's purpose. Because he made us, he gets to determine our purposes, which are to enjoy him and glorify him forever. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, that all things belong to Christ because he is Lord and King. One day every tongue will confess, every knee will bow at King Jesus. Things are his. 
and through whom we exist, that as Christians, because of what Jesus has done for us, because of his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and second coming, we are alive spiritually. We exist because of Jesus. If he wouldn't have done that, we'd just be dead men walking. And so Paul says, yes, there is one God. There is one Lord. And we'll see in in verse 7 through 11, the problem that's been created. By some believing that doesn't matter what food you eat, even if it's been sacrificed to idols, they are causing the weaker brothers and sisters to stumble, to be defiled and destroyed. Like, that's the problem here. That's what's the issue. So, we need to look, what does Paul mean by the weaker brother? What does he mean? And so from the, the text, I was able to pull out four things that, that I think we can all agree on. Number one is that the weaker brother loves Jesus. The weaker brother loves Jesus. They're a Christian. They might be a baby Christian, but they love Jesus. Two, they have a past of idolatry. That they have, in a season of life, they've been actively ignoring the true God, the God of the Bible. They've ignored Jesus Christ. And they've participated in idol worship. Number three, the weaker brother has some sort of false belief that needs to be corrected. He has some maturing to do. His, his mind needs to be renewed. And four, we see that this weaker brother is easily discouraged and can ultimately be destroyed because of their weak conscience. Now, weak conscience, what does that mean? R.C. Sproul says this about our conscience. A Christian conscience has two functions. One is an accuser. The other part is an excuser. What he means is that the accuser, our Christian conscience, accuses us when we do things wrong. It accuses us of the wrong things that we do. Whether we know it's wrong or eventually we find out it's wrong, the Christian conscience accuses us. And the Spirit of God uses this to bring about repentance, to bring about ultimately new life, to bring in deeper faith in Jesus. And the other function, the excuser, this one's a little, like I think we get the accuser part. We we all feel guilty. We all feel um, condemned. We all feel, you know, something to that effect when we do wrong things. I hope. I hope we have a conscience. But the thing that we're probably not familiar with is the excuser. That when we do stuff right, when we follow God, there are going to be people on the outside, there are going to be others who accuse us, you're doing this wrong. You're not following God right, you're just making something up. And so the Christian conscience acts as an excuser to excuse those false accusations. It says, no, 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 like you are, the Spirit of God is leading you. So... In our culture, when we think weak conscience, what we think is that our accuser is broken. When we think of somebody with a a weak conscience, we think of a guy that can um, be a complete jerk to everybody, um, cheat on his wife, you know, do a bunch of stupid stuff and get away with it and not feel any, any sort of grossness about it. Like he has a high tolerance for acting sinfully. His accuser is broken. But Paul, in this passage, I think he's showing us that, that the weak, weaker brother, the weaker Christian, doesn't have a broken accuser, like that thing's working right. The weaker brother has a broken excuser. 
that, that this person is constantly wondering if they're doing things right. That um, they, they always feel guilty. They, they, they're not sure of their actions. And they feel limited in what they can do. There's, they have no endorsement of doing right things. They don't have, have that freedom, that, that, um, that comfort in knowing that they're following God. Tim Keller puts it this way, to steal from him once again. A weak conscience is a conscience which is too weak, it's too weak to protect the person from feeling defiled, from feeling always guilty, from feeling always condemned and polluted. In other words, as far as Paul is concerned, your conscience is weak if it is not deeply oriented to grace and the love of God. You have a weak conscience if you are constantly feeling accused and condemned. He says, here are, the, here are the weak people. The weak people are those who are temperamentally tight and who need everything evaluated. So from that, from that definition, we, we see a couple things. That this implies that the weaker brother, weaker sister needs everything to be in black and white. There's no room for gray areas. This person is constantly unsure of their behavior. They're looking to know if they're in the right or the wrong. The main thing is that they are unable, he says the main thing is that they are unable to recall the gospel. They're unable to recall the grace and the love of the Father. Does this sound like you? Do you feel accused? Do you often feel defiled? Do you feel gross? Do you feel like, you can't do anything right? Do you look at the behavior of other Christians and constantly judge what they're doing? Well, I don't think they should have tattoos. I don't think they should drink. I don't think they should smoke or dance or listen to that music that's not Christian. I don't think they should have that kind of house or wear that kind of dress or have those kind of piercings. Do you ask those questions? Does that, does that kind of trip you up? Does your past keep you from doing things that might be okay? If this is you, then listen, if this is you, then your, your problem isn't that you need to gain a better tolerance or better uh, get thicker skin or, or anything like that. The problem is, and the solution is, that you need to, to become more deeply oriented toward grace and the love of God. And that grace, that love of God will change you. You'll be able to understand and rest in your freedoms in Christ. Look, if this is you, we are glad you're here. This is a place for you. Like, if you are a weaker brother, that's not a bad thing. Like, everyone in this room at some point, if you're a Christian, will be a weaker brother or sister. Just like at, every one point, at one point, everyone in this room was a child. It's okay to be that weaker brother, but there is no better place for you than to be in a gospel community and on mission. That's the best place for a weaker brother because a weaker brother, listen here, a weaker brother is not meant to be a weaker brother for life. A weaker brother is meant to be a weaker brother for a season. We're meant to grow up. Like the reason that you and I aren't children anymore is because we were made to grow up. And so the weaker Christian, like what you should be focusing on is, is growing in grace 
knowing that, that, that you will be made strong in the Lord. But sometimes what happens is that when, we, when our weakness isn't addressed, when, when we're not realizing that we are weaker brothers or weaker sisters, that evolves into legalism. You say, well, I've abstained from a certain type of behavior because it, it once was an issue, drinking, smoking, dancing, watching R-rated movies. I've, I've stayed away from those things for so long that rather than growing in my Christian freedom, rather than growing in grace and potentially enjoying something for what it is, I become judgmental of other people who partake in those things. So you impose your rules upon someone else, which may or may not even be biblical. They might, they might be just your own made-up rules. And that's bad. Because what, what's happening is that in that legalism, you're getting sucked into that weaker brother role for so long. So if, if you're living life like a legalist, disguised as a weaker brother, I say this, I say this in all love, you need to grow up. If you are living as a legalist disguised as a weaker brother, you need to grow up. Jesus wants you to grow up. Jesus wants you to be strengthened. And what's happening is you're not believing the gospel in a way where you're not growing in grace and love. You're not believing the gospel right. And so I've got a I've got a couple steps. I know we don't do steps often, but I think that, that this would be helpful because like, you think, well, I've been in this rut so long. I don't, I don't know, you know how to get out of it. So let me help you out here real quick. First thing you need to do, first thing you need to do is admit that you've been, you've been posing as a weaker brother for too long. You just you admit it. God, that I've, been, I've been stuck in this place for so long. I've been resisting the Holy Spirit's work to mature me, to grow me up. Hebrews, author of Hebrews says that let us strive for maturity in Christ. I've been resisting that. Once you acknowledge it, you need to repent because this behavior is sinful. What you're doing, you're failing to love others well because of it, because you're judgmental. And you've been missing out on opportunities for growth. You need to grow, not growth, growth. You need to repent of that sinful behavior. And, and once you repent, you need to rest. Rest in the forgiveness of God. Know that he has forgiven you, that he's, he's washed you clean, that he has a plan to move you on. Let the Spirit lead you in that place. And once you've done that, once you've done some hard work with Jesus, you need to go to your MC. You need to go to your fight club and say, guys, this is something that I've struggled with. This is, I've been posing as, an, as an, a weak Christian for a long time, but really I've just been legalistic. I've been judgmental. Like, so can you tell me, can you tell me what I need to do? What things do you see that I can do in my faith to move towards maturity? And use those people. Let the Spirit lead you. Let the Spirit use those guys to speak to you, or ladies, speak to you. So that's my, that's for those of you who are, who are legalists, disguised as weaker brothers. That's, that's all I'm going to say on that. But in this passage, Paul isn't addressing the younger brother. He's not, he's not addressing the weaker brother here as much as he is addressing those who seem to be strong, those who seem to be knowledgeable in the faith. Let's read verses 9 and 11. He says, But take care that this right of yours, this freedom of yours, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If, he is, if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother whom Christ died Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding the conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. In this passage, Paul is using words that get more and more intense. First, you, you defile your brother, which isn't like, if you feel defiled, it's an unpleasant feeling. You don't like it. Then it's, you cause them to stumble, which is unfortunate ac- action. Like, I've tripped over my fair share of instrument cables in my day. Like, it's not fun. And, and lastly, kind of blows it up. He says that you're destroying them, that you are taking part in the complete undoing of someone. Paul's escalating the damage to these weaker brothers. And we need to understand that the weaker brother, it's not just that they're offended. It's not just that they're hurt, not just that they're, they're doubting, but their faith is potentially being completely destroyed. What they know to be true about God, what they know to be true about Jesus, is being called into question. And because they're young, because they're weak, it's a, it's a good possibility that they might, they're like, oh, this stuff's too confusing, this is too hard, I'm gonna go back to the temple where I could just chop off a pigeon's head and call it good for the day. So we see that it's the responsibility of those who are strong in the faith to look after those who are weaker because those who are weak are easy prey for Satan. They're easy prey for for demons, for any sort of alliance with Satan. If you were to go on an African safari or turn on Animal Planet, if you can't afford an African safari like me, if you were to turn it on and have the opportunity to see a pride of lions going on the hunt, what kind of, what kind of wildebeest do you think they're going to target? They're going to they're gonna choose to target the weakest one because it's the easiest one. They're going to target the slowest one, the one with a limp, the one that doesn't know which way is up or down. They're just like running around like this. That's who the lions are going to go after. And that Satan, to some degree, has the same approach, that it's easy to go after those who are weak. It's easy to make young and immature believers turn their back on God. However, that analogy does break down because Satan is also trying to attack the strong. He's also trying to to cause the the leaders to crumble, to cause your mission. Satan is trying to destroy your missional community leader. But it's those who are strong in the faith, those who, who love the Lord with, with a passion, it are those people who are able to defend themselves, to be built up in Christ, and to defend others. So we see it's the stronger, stronger brother's responsibility to the weaker brother to protect them, to lay down their life for them. And, and in our culture, in our, in our setting, loving the weaker brother might look like, and it often does look like, setting aside your Christian freedom, your own preferences, setting aside your own wants and your own desires for the good of someone else. That's my, that might be what it looks like. 
It might mean refraining from drinking in the presence of someone who's struggling with alcoholism. You say, well, my knowledge tells me my Christian freedom allows me to, to drink. As long as I'm not getting drunk, as, as long as I'm not turning into a God, I'm allowed to consume alcohol. I mean, Jesus gave us wine and bread to remember him by. Like, we can partake of that. But love for my brother, out of protection for my brother, I will set that freedom aside so that he will not stumble. I will, I will be respectful of them in their presence. Now, it doesn't mean that you stop drinking alcohol or doing whatever. It just means that you are sensitive, that you're conscious that, that he is having a hard time. Women, young women, it might mean dressing more modestly in the presence of your brothers who are struggling with lust. Your Christian knowledge tells you that you have been fearfully and wonderfully made, that you are beautiful because you have been made in the image of God. Your Christian knowledge tells you that, and that you are supposed to reflect God's beauty. Like, we are to reflect God's beauty. But love for your brother might look like covering up a little bit, lest you make him stumble. That's, that might be what it looks like to love your brother. And so what's going on here is, is we see a, my, my knowledge tells me this, but love acts differently. You see that? My, my freedom says that I can do this. I can partake. I can do these things. But my love for my brother, I might behave differently in their presence with them in mind. And so Paul, he, he's a genius. This Paul's a genius. At the very beginning of this passage, he starts out separating knowledge and love. He draws a a distinct difference between the two. This is precisely what Paul is talking about. That the Corinthians, they know they can do something, but they aren't loving enough to refrain from doing that in the presence of a weaker brother. And this is precisely what's wrong with the Corinthian church. This is what is going wrong. The Corinthian church is driven by knowledge rather than a deep and sincere love for one another. Paul says to them, you know, but you don't know. Like, you think you get it, but you don't get it. Because the point of Christian freedom isn't to hurt your brother. The point of Christian freedom is to enjoy the freedoms in Christ. You are, you are freed in Christ for freedom's sake. But the point of this is to love. The point of being the church is to love one another, to show the world what it looks like when the love of God has a huge impact. Look, God didn't so know of the world. He didn't know about the world that he sent his son to die. God so loved the world that he laid himself down. Like that is what it looks like to be the church, to love one another deeply. And so in Paul's um, opening message here, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And I think of it like this. Knowledge is like an inflatable bouncy castle. You hook that thing up to a fan, blow it up, gives the image of a, a building, the appearance of a building. It looks like it's a building. But all it takes is 
an idiot kid with a BB gun to bring down that inflatable castle. All it takes is a stick in the storm to puncture a hole in the castle and bring it toppling down on itself. It can be easily destroyed. This inflatable castle wasn't made to be permanent. It wasn't made to be a safe place in the storm. Love, on the other hand, is like a castle built of stone and mortar. This doesn't just give the appearance of a building. This is a building. This is a building that was made to last. This is a a building that's a safe place. You know, there, there are castles that were built um, upwards of a thousand years ago that are still around today. Stone and mortar. Like, that's, that's what they were made of. And they're still around. If you go back, before they knew how to make castles, there are still buildings that are dated to 4,000 B.C. that are made of stone and mortar. They're still standing. That is what Paul is desiring the church to look like, to be a church of love, a church that is made on a firm foundation, a church that's made to last. A church that's made to be a fortress, a place for people to go when they're afraid, a place for those to be safe, a place that is built up in love. But the the Corinthians, they were looking more like an inflatable castle. Their knowledge was puffing up, They were given a false uh, appearance of maturity and wisdom. And Paul knew that a church centered on and driven by knowledge, it wasn't going to last. It could not endure the storm. It would be gone in a few few years. It may may make it a decade or two if you're lucky. So what Paul is saying here is he's teaching them to be a church that loves well because that will be what makes you last. He's teaching them that, that love isn't just the appearance of maturity and wisdom. Love is maturity and wisdom. Love is self-sacrificing for the good of others. And a church that is centered on and driven by love will last. It will endure the storm. It will carry into eternity. It will be patient and forbearing with others. It will be kind. It will be forgiving. It will be hospitable. It will be what the world needs. This is hard to do. It's hard to love somebody. It's hard to love someone other than yourself. That's why marriages are difficult. It's hard to to love someone more than we love our freedom. It doesn't come natural to humans to love well. You want to know why? It's because we're selfish. We're selfish people. We're always looking out for me, me, myself, and I. That's who our number one concern is about. We're selfish with our time. We're selfish with our money. We're selfish with our love, with our resources, with our creativity. All those things that we have, we're selfish with them. And we think when someone says, hey, can you help me? You think, well, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? Like, what's, what's the benefit for me? And, and that's usually the default question that we go to. Like, you may not say it audibly, but in your mind, well, I could help you move, uh, but there better be pizza there because I'm going to be hungry. Like, we're thinking about what's in it for me. And we don't realize 
like when I say we're selfish, some of you are like, yeah, I know this person's selfish. This guy, yeah. But we don't realize how selfish we are. We don't realize, we, like, we get it, but we don't get it. We are selfish to the core, and the center of our heart is me. We think, I, I don't know if I can help out, because if I, if I do this for them, who's going to meet my needs? Who's going who's gonna to do something for me? What's the first word, one of the first words in a child's vocabulary? Mine. Mine. That, the toy is mine. It's for me. And we, like, as much as we think that we grow out of it, we don't really grow out of it. We might not say it, but in our hearts, we're saying mine, my time, my money, my creativity, my resources. Becca and I just had our first son, um, and one of the things that we've been saying to each other often as we, we learn life as a parent is that we didn't realize how selfish we were. We didn't realize, you know, like if, if we want to go to bed, we're going to bed. If I want to eat something, I can eat. But we have this kid now who we've got to tend to first, that we've got to, to put our own preferences on hold. And that, that sucks. <laughs> That's I mean, being a parent is great. It's awesome. It's a blessing. There's a lot of great things that the Lord is showing me, but it's difficult. And any parent in the room can probably agree with me. I, I'm assuming, unless you have awesome kids that never cry or poop themselves. <laughs> Look, it's hard. And we're bad at it. We're bad at loving others well. But there was one man who did it perfectly. Jesus set aside every right, he set aside every freedom he had to sit in heaven and watch humanity tank itself into the ground. Like Jesus could have done that. He was hanging out in heaven, he was with his father, basking in the love of the Trinity, he had perfect relationship going on, there was no conflict, he probably had the best food that you could ever imagine, he had some good music to listen to with the angels singing, like he had it all. He was completely happy. He wasn't lacking anything. He could have just stayed there. But instead, Jesus set aside. Listen, Jesus set aside every right he had. Jesus set aside every right he had to live in perfection. He was entitled to it. He set aside all those rights, and he humbled himself, and he became a man in the flesh Look, and I don't know about your experience as being a human, but like, it's not roses and rainbows. Like, being a human can be tough. But Jesus set aside perfection to become a human. He, he would come to know the pains of relational turmoil. He had disciples that would either uh, betray him or reject him. Jesus would know what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to feel pain, to, to feel sad. Jesus set apart and set aside the perfection of heaven, and he came and he lived life as a normal human, me, human being on earth. And as a human being here on earth, everything, and actually everything since eternity past to eternity future, everything that Jesus has ever done 
has been in love for others, either in love for uh, the Trinity, for Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or it's been in love for his creation. He fed thousands when they would come to listen to him. He healed the sick and restored sight to the blind. He freed the demon-possessed from that tyranny. He went out of his way to include the social outcasts. But the most impressive thing, this just blows my mind, like, this blows my mind, that Jesus, his affections were always perfectly, his affections were always perfectly set on God. Always perfectly. He never, never participated in idolatry, never turned his back on God. He never moved anything uh, to the number one spot in his life. God was always the center. God was always the number one. And because his affections were perfectly set on God, he was enabled to love his neighbor perfectly. The disciples, Jesus' disciples, listen, they know what it's like to be loved perfectly. They experienced that because Jesus loved perfectly. Jesus' mom, Mary, she knew what it was like to have the perfect son and be loved perfectly by her son. Jesus did that perfectly. And in the apex of Jesus' ministry in in his life, Jesus was led up to a hill. He was nailed to a cross as the ultimate display of love for others. As the ultimate display. He laid down his life. Jesus laid down his life, set aside his, his right to live for undeserving, selfish people like you and me. People who think of themselves more than they think of others. People who who are looking out for themselves all the time. Jesus laid down his life for those people. And Jesus went to the cross. He felt God's wrath. He felt the pain of brokenness. He felt the disappointment. Listen, Jesus felt the disappointment of worshiping idols. Jesus felt that so that you and I would never have to feel that again. We would never have to know that pain and disappointment. If we set our affections on Christ, if we put our faith on Christ, we will not be let down. We will not be forsaken. Not only did he lay down his life for you, not only did he sacrifice his life and and die for you, but he gave you a new life, a new life in the spirit. He gave you a new life. He didn't just take your punishment, but he gave you his reward. He didn't just take your punishment, he gave you his reward. A life where all joy, hope, and love abound. A life where all our needs are met. A life where all flourish and are cared for. That is what Jesus gave us. This is what Jesus did for you. He has shown us a love that builds up. He showed us a love that builds up, a love that lasts, a love eternal, a love that is unwavering, a love that is immeasurable, a love that is for your good, a love that stirs your deepest affections, a love that is meant to move you toward righteousness. That's what he gave you. 
a sacrificial love that's for your benefit. Now, if you're not a believer, if, if Jesus isn't your Lord, if, if you don't believe that God is the only God, I urge you, I urge you with all my heart to put your faith in Jesus and know that he paid for your selfishness. He paid for your sin. And he's given you a new life. He wants you to embrace that. He wants you to put, his, put your faith in him. He wants you to know the assurance. He wants you to know love to the deepest possible way. For the others of us who have put our faith in Jesus, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to ignore it? Are you going to ignore what Jesus did or are you going to accept it? Are you going to embrace it? Will you imitate Jesus or will you keep on living in your selfish ways? Look, if we accept the truth about Jesus, that he died for our sins and has given us a new life, our life, the way we live our life must reflect this. 1 John 3.16 says this, by this we know love, that he, that Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If we're going to put our faith in Jesus, if we're going to say that, that Jesus is our Lord, we must live like he is our Lord. We must follow his example. We must walk with him. And if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, the, the motivation for everything you do, the, the fuel for what drives you, must be love for God and love for one another. A love for the church. I've I got to make decisions that are loving toward my brother. I've got to make decisions that are loving toward my sister, that are loving towards my missional community. And the only way to do that, the only way to have that fuel, the only way to love God and to love our neighbors well is to receive the love from the Father. The only way is to bask in the love of Christ. That's where we have to start. Now Paul gets this. Verse 13, Paul gets this. He understands this. He understands what it looks like to love his brother well. This is what he says. Verse 13, Therefore, man, he's crazy. I like meat a lot. I don't know if I could do this. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I like food too. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul gets this. What he's saying here, if, if, if Christ died for my brother, if Christ died for me, the least that I can do is change my diet. The least that I can do is adjust my behavior. Paul gets this. And this is what we should be saying. If, if food causes my brother to stumble, I won't, I won't partake of it. I won't eat meat. If, if drinking causes my uh, recovering alcoholic friend to stumble, man, I'm, I'm not going to drink in his presence. If smoking causes my friend who recently quit smoking, tried to quit smoking, to stumble, then I'm not going to do it. Not in their presence. Look, and the change for this, this change, this heart change, because this isn't just 
please don't be deceived. This is not just a behavioral change. Paul is not talking about changing behaviors. Paul is, has experienced a heart change, something deep in the core of him. And if we want to, if we want to experience that change, the first thing we have to do is take our focus off ourselves. First, you need to look to Jesus. Look at what he has done for you. Bask in that. Meditate on the gospel. Just grow in it. Marinate in it. And then, once you see, once you see Jesus in his glory, and see Jesus in his self-giving love, you need to repent of your selfishness. The times where knowledge was your motivator rather than love. You need to repent of the times that you've put your own preferences ahead of the preferences of others. Look, when you do that, when you, when you confess and repent and you, and you receive forgiveness, that's when you start to think, what's the application? What does this look like in my life? How will this change how I relate to others? Well, you can see knowledge puffs up. Knowledge creates a high horse for the Corinthians to sit on and look down at people. Paul's saying that a changed heart enters into this struggle with these people. Jesus entered into humanity. We need to encourage the weaker brother. This is no longer their struggle. This is our struggle because we're sharing one another's burdens. We are working to build one another up in love. We're working or striving toward maturity in Christ. Like I kind of alluded to a few practical application points earlier um, with drinking and ladies dressing modestly. And, and please don't hear me. if, Ladies, I'm not saying to wear a sleeping bag or to wear sweats all the time. That's not what I'm saying. But to be mindful of the way you dress around your brother. Help him if the brother wants to sin, the brother's going to sin. But a man who is fighting his sin, he needs your help. He needs your help. That's a practical way to love your brother in his struggle against lust. If someone is dealing with gluttony, then be mindful of what you put on the table before them when you have them over for dinner. Stay away from the Oreos and scotcheroos and chocolate pies. Like, super practical. Put healthy food on the table. By helping them in this way, you are keeping them from idolatry. You're loving them. You're encouraging them. And look, and, and another thing is to have an honest conversation with someone. Hey, I, I know that this has been a struggle of yours in the past. I know that, that you've been fighting this. Is this still an ongoing thing? Like, is this something that you still struggle with? Is there something I can do to help? Is there something that I can do to change? Like, have those conversations. And, la and as I wrap up here, I, I can't stand up here and address every single issue because I don't know all the issues that are out there. I don't know what people are struggling, struggling with. But you, you have the ability to go to the Father and seek wisdom. So we need to explore for ourselves. We need to explore for ourselves what it m might look like to love the weaker brother well. And when it comes down to it, the Holy Spirit will lead you. The Holy Spirit will tell you how to love them well. So think, like, think, I want you, like, this is homework, I guess. 
that I want, you to, I want you to take this and I want you to go home and think about who's in your life. Like, who's in your missional community? What do they struggle with? What do you know that they struggle with? And then, and then think and, and have this conversation. What would it look like to love you in a way that promotes growth and grace? What would it look like to love you well? Like, we need to be asking these questions. Guys, we are the church for a reason. We are a church so that we would love one another well with the love that Christ has shown us, a love that builds up. Look, and can you just imagine with me for a moment what it would be like to be in a church that loves each other well, a self-sacrificing love, a love that just... Everywhere you go, man, you walk up to a guy, like, dude, I can just feel his love for me. Like, I can, he cares about me. Like, can, can you imagine a place like that? A deep, sincere love for our brothers and sisters. Gosh, that would be awesome. Be unreal. And, and one day it will be like that in perfection in the new heavens, new earth. But right now we're here on earth and we are meant are meant to be a witness to the love of God. So not only do we benefit from loving one another well, like for the church loving the church well, but others benefit by our loving each other well. Neighbors, our neighbors will look in and see something is crazy here. These people, like it doesn't make sense that they would love each other. They come from different backgrounds. They have different preferences. But for some reason, they're able to gather around a table. They're able to laugh. They're able to, to recreate together. So just think of the impact that we could have on our city. Think about it. What if Davenport became the city of love? Wouldn't that be neat? Like we have an opportunity to step into that. We have an opportunity to initiate that. A city of love. Man, that would be great. This is my last thought. Church, let us love one another. Let us love one another. Not a foofy love, but a nitty-gritty down in the trenches, laying my life down for you, love. Let us love one another with the love of Christ, with the love that he showed us, a love that builds up, a love that encourages a love that strengthens, a love that moves us from immaturity and weakness to, to strength and maturity. Let us do this. Let us love each other well for the good of our city and to the glory of Christ. Father God, we, we love you. We're thankful for you, especially in how Christ laid his life down for us that he could have had it all, he could have stayed up in heaven, relaxing. He gave that up and entered into sinful humanity and he felt the pain of it and he was led to a cross and with this meal that we are about to partake in, we are reminded, we are reminded that Christ laid his life down for us. 
So God, would that change our hearts? Would you, would your spirit soften our hearts? Would we see what Jesus has done for us? God, and would you enable us to walk in faith, to walk in obedience, to be a church that loves each other with a radical, crazy love? God, this is only possible through your spirit, through the gospel, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.